Good evening. It is good to see you here tonight. We are just thankful, thankful to God. What a blessing is ours to be together. Thankful for your presence here. We're continuing our thought and the things that we have been discussing from the book of Philippians. If you have your Bibles there and you are turning or already at chapter 4, that is where we will be tonight in those verses that have been read. We continue to suggest that it's connected to chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. At least these thoughts are where Paul talks about our citizenship being in heaven, uh, from which we eagerly look for the Savior. And so we've been giving this a, a, a subtitle of a heaven-bound life in this section. And last week we looked at the fact that a heaven-bound life is a life rooted in the Lord. We looked at the first three verses of this chapter, and we move now to verses 4 through 7 with our title being, A Heaven-Bound Life is a Life of Peace. The Apostle Paul is going to talk about that this, and this section of Scripture, that this life that we are looking eagerly for the, the Lord's return and for our going to be with Him is a life that is a life of peace. There are, again, several exhortations here in these next four verses for things that we are to do and promises that God will make. I don't know if I've mentioned it. I feel like I have, but those first few sermons are a blur to me. I felt like I was talking 900 miles an hour, and I can't remember a whole lot. I don't know what you remember from that. But I may have used the expression upward and inward and outward. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Three of us remember me saying that. <laughs> well, at some point, we'll put a lot more meat on that notion. But the, the notion behind that is simply this, that uh, a look upward is a look toward God. And um, Isaiah 6 is where that idea comes from. And then a look inward is a look introspectively at ourselves. And then finally, a look outward is our, our fellow man. And Isaiah points that that idea and concept out there, and what I have found is you'll find that frequently in Scripture, that there is a, a view toward God. The Bible will use the word godly to describe this view, piety, the right attitude and disposition toward God. And then there's this inward look of introspection, the way we're to properly see ourselves, and at last then we look out as we deal with our fellow man. I'm simply saying that because that's a constant theme, and we kind of find that idea here. There are exhortations about God and about us or statements made here, and then those with regards to our fellow man. This peaceful life, beginning in verse number 4, the first thing that Paul says is in verse number 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Now, he's already said three things in those first three verses. Among them, as he said, stand firm in the Lord, verse number one. He also said, live in harmony in the Lord, verse number two. And now he says, rejoice in the Lord, in verse number four. This peaceful life, this heaven-bound life is possible because of the Lord, and ultimately, all that we do and are is the result of Jesus. And Paul frequently makes that connection in this book. If we were to go back and read chapter 1 of this epistle, it will be filled with Jesus. All that Paul did, all that he 
thought and all that he behaved was because of Christ. And he says that in chapter 1. When he gets to chapter 2, he says, the mind that we are to have is the mind of Christ. And in chapter 3, he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And he says it again here. It's interesting how peace and joy and contentment, which he'll talk about, all of these things are connected to being in the Lord. They're the result of being in the Lord. They're the blessings that come along with that. And Paul has frequently talked about the idea of rejoicing. Again, back in chapter 1, you'll remember he said he rejoiced because Christ was preached. Even though some preach Christ of envy and strife, Paul says, I rejoice that Christ is being preached. He says he rejoiced because Christ allows us to worship God acceptably. You remember chapter 3 where he says, we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit. We do that, those who belong to Jesus. He rejoiced because, as we just noticed, chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, he says, our citizenship is in heaven from whence we look for the Savior. He rejoiced because Christ will change, again, verse 21, our vile bodies into his glorious body. Now, every time you and I read the book of Philippians, you should know that we're hearing from a man in prison. Sometimes if you don't take the time to take the extra step of reading the Bible contextually, you might lose sight of the fact that Paul is not warming himself in the comfort of his living room when he writes this, that he is not at ease and having a nice break when he writes this. And yet he's constantly saying, rejoice, rejoice. Now, why? In the Lord. The truth of the matter is there's never a time when children of God cannot find cause to rejoice in the Lord. There's no occasion. You can't drum up an occasion. You can't make an occasion. It's always the case. In fact, he says rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. The world has done us a disservice when it comes to the concept of joy and they've largely boiled it down to an emotional high or thrill. And so if you're happy in the moment, well then that's great. The problem with that is it could be so taken so quickly. You could be happy one moment and you could be sad another. I know that's true because many of you are college football fans. And I have seen it in action. <laughs> I know what it's like to be happy one moment. I've seen it. And then, oh, no, <laughs> look at what just happened. Can't believe it. And people go from elation to great sadness and sorrow in a moment. That is not what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Our circumstances do not define and determine our joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. This peaceful life is also a life of joy. But then secondly, notice verse number five. There the apostle Paul says, this heaven-bound life is a light-shining life. He says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. The King James has here the word moderation. Let your moderation be known to all men. 
And sometimes when people would read that, they would come up with this idea of you divide your life into spiritual things and physical things, and you make sure that you fill most of your life with spiritual things, and then you make sure you treat the, the physical, carnal things in moderation. And if you were to get beyond moderation, well, then that would be a problem. Well, that has problems in, in several respects, and that's not at all what the Apostle Paul is talking about. That rendering is much better, but let me share it with you in other renderings. The NASV says of this verse, as we just read, let your gentle spirit, not moderation, but your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The ESV says, let your reasonableness be made known to all men. The King James says, moderation. A heaven-bound life is a reasonable life. It's a gentle life, a harmonious, balanced, gentle, a life like Jesus. A life that, as Paul looks and says in chapter 1 and verse 21, beginning, a life that could be in prison and say, rejoice in the Lord always. A life that could be in prison and say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. When the world sees a Christian, they should see the most moderate, reasonable, gentle person on earth because of Christ. Let your gentle spirit, you'll note what he says, this is the outward portion. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. You remember Matthew 5 and verse number 16. It's important that you and I always make this connection. It's always going to be upward and inward and outward. That's always going to be the case. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. It's always going to be that way. We don't go hide ourselves inside of a church building and stay away from the world. That's not what we do. We don't divide our lives into small amounts and then categorize, I've given this much to God and I've given this much to the world and I want to make sure I don't go too far. I don't want to be moderate. That's not what we do. The Christian life is always the Christian life. The Christian life is always a spiritual life. And when we're using things in the world, we're using them spiritually. We're just using the world the way God intended it so that when they see us in the world, they see, now that person right there is spiritual. That is a well-balanced, harmonious, that is a gentle spirit. That person right there is different because of our lives. Let that be made known to all men. The second part of this verse, Paul says, the Lord is at hand or the Lord is near. There are a couple of possibilities for what that could mean. One of them is it could simply be a reference to God's presence to provide comfort through challenges. And that's always true. Hebrews 13, 4 and 5, I'll never leave you or forsake you. The Lord will always be with us, and that's certainly true. It could also be a reference to the coming judgment in A.D. 70, that the Lord is near. There is an exhortation in the New Testament for Christians to be faithful because that event will happen. It will happen, in fact, Matthew 24, the first part of that chapter, it will happen within that generation. It will happen in such a way that when you see these things, know the end is near. That is going to happen, James says, 
the judge is standing at the door. It could very well be the case that part of what's happening in the New Testament is the New Testament Christians are being told to be faithful and hold on. Your day is coming. You will be vindicated. The Lord is near. Third, a heaven-bound life is a worry-free life. Notice in verse number six, the first part of the verse, the Bible simply says, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. So far, he says, stand firm in the Lord, live in harmony in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, help those in, in, who serve the Lord, and rejoice in the Lord, verse 4, let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. And now he says, be anxious for nothing, but in prayer, thanksgiving, supplications, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Question, what does it mean? Now, the truth of the matter is, it means just what it says. <laughs> Don't you love that about the Bible? God just says what he means. Here's a note, and I just ask you to hold on to this one. If you are not doing what the Scripture forbids, then don't live as if you are. If you're not doing it, then don't, don't live as if you are, if, if you're not. Clearly, the Scripture forbids something here, but if you're not doing that, then don't beat yourself up about doing that which you're not doing. It means something. What does it mean? Well, let's take a closer look. To, to be anxious for nothing, the word anxious means to be troubled with cares to be anxious or solicitous, to expend careful thought. The word solicitous means showing great attention or concern to another, expressing care or concern for another. Now, Paul is not the first one to teach this. Before Paul told the Philippians to not be anxious, Jesus taught his disciples not to be anxious. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 27 and 28, he says it several times, actually. Among the things the Lord said is, don't be anxious, control what you can control. And don't be anxious about that which you can't control. Matthew 6, 27 and 28, the Bible says, and which of you by being anxious, there's our word, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious? about clothing. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Jesus continued, don't be anxious. Instead, prioritize the kingdom. That's what he says in Matthew 6, 32 to 34. There the Bible says, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. He says it again. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. He continues, don't be anxious. He says it again as he closes in verse 34 of chapter 6. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient unto the day is its own trouble. This word, care or anxious, can be used positively and negatively depending on context. 
Let's look at it in a positive nature. It's actually proper to do this sometimes. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 32, Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties, free from anxiety, free from care. It's the same word negated. I, be not anxious. I want you to be free from being anxious. Sometimes care is positive. The word means to expend careful thought, to concern oneself. When is that proper? In that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, in verse number 31 to 34, consider what Paul says regarding the married and the unmarried. He says, the unmarried man is anxious, careth. He does this. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. It's also in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 25 to 27, where as Paul talks about the body, he tells us all to be anxious. He says that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We are to care sometimes, properly, when it's appropriate in those dynamics. Now, it's also possible that the brethren may have been anxious about their enemies and about the world and about persecution. The word that's rendered be anxious for nothing, that word nothing can also and is sometimes rendered no one. Be anxious for no one. It's sometimes rendered that way in the New Testament. Well, who might they be anxious about? He's talked about several possibilities in the book. In chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, he talked about some preaching Christ of envy and strife, some supposing to add affliction to his bonds. In verse 28 and 30 of that same chapter, he says, in nothing alarmed, King James says, terrified or frightened by your opponents. In chapter 2, in verse 21, he talked about some that seek their own. They don't have the love of Christ. They seek their own. In chapter 3, in verses 2 through 6, he says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the circumcision. In chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, he says, many walk of whom I have told you they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 6, be anxious for nothing. You go back and start to read through the Bible, it becomes very clear where people got anxious and they did it wrong. Saul, of, Saul comes to mind, King Saul. It would be right to say he was anxious about Goliath. David wasn't. It's not simply the thought of it 
or, or, or what, what is of concern. It's the attitude and the disposition and the effect that it has on you. It's what it does to your mind, your soul, and your actions. You remember the 12 spies went into the land to spy it out. Ten of them were anxious about the giants. Joshua and Caleb were not. The three Hebrew boys were stood in front of the fiery furnace in the image of Nebuchadnezzar, and they were not careful. They're not anxious. The question is, what impact does it have on your mind? What is it doing to your life? I would urge that this anxiousness here is a near relative to fear, and it will paralyze you. It will prevent you from going forward. It will consume you. It will inevitably defeat you. The Apostle Paul is a man in prison, but he's not anxious. In fact, this is a man who was beaten and falsely accused and thrust into the jail, and having been beaten, he wrote the words of chapter 1, brethren, the things that have happened unto me have fallen out further unto the furtherance of the gospel. In Acts chapter 16, after that beating and after being thrown in prison, we find him about midnight singing and praying. We sign him just writing, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Chapter 3 and verse 15, let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude. A heaven-bound life is a a life that's free from this kind of anxiousness about anything or anyone. It's not an unhealthy life. It's not a person that goes around and ignores reality and danger and difficulty. It's not a person that has no mind that there are sometimes troubling things in life, but it is a person who's not anxious, not agitated, not overwhelmed or overcome. It's a person who is at peace in the midst of a storm. It's not a storm-free life. It's a peaceful life in the storm because Christ is with him, because God is greater than all of his concerns, because Christ has conquered sin and death. I ask you this, what is it that's greater than death that's happening to you? I would just assume, and I could be wrong because I've been wrong multiple times, but I would just assume if people were sitting down writing their concerns, if they're still alive, I would say they're on the, they're on the good side. And if they had to choose between whatever it is and death, I would think death would be the greater threat to their concern and wellness, I would think. And yet the Bible says Christ has already conquered death, and that death has no power over the child of God. Well, if that's the case. Even in death, he wins. No one can take you from the hand of God, Romans chapter 8. Here's the bottom line of this. There can be no spiritual problem we have for which God doesn't have the answer. And part of my concern here is that I've talked to Christians who are experiencing what 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13 would call the common lot of all men— no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. There's a finite number and limitations of possibilities of what you and I could go through. And you could be in the midst of one right now. 
And I've talked to people who are in them. I don't try to pretend they're not. I don't throw them some cliche like it's going to be all right. God's going to, no, it's hard and it's bad and it's tough right now. Got it. And there you are in the midst of it. But listen, if you are going through something and you open up God's word and you're suggesting to me my mind is so agitated and worried about this matter. And somebody says, well, you know what? Over here in the book of Acts, when that happened, to, and then God said, oh, that won't work. Oh, okay. Well, you know, over here in Philippians, when the apostle Paul said, and you know what he went, yeah, no, nah, that won't work. You know, in the gospel accounts, there's Jesus, and he was, was this is what happened, and this is what he, you know, that won't work. Listen, you can't have a problem that God don't have a solution for. You can't have an issue or a trial in which God can't comfort you. Your mind cannot be so agitated and irritated and so bothered that God can't bring peace to you. If it is the case that God can't bring peace, well then, friend, what good is God? Bible won't tell us be anxious for nothing, if there is something for which we ought to be anxious about. If you want to overcome your worry, ask and answer the question, what are you worried about? I have found it helpful, and so let me just encourage you to write it down. Put it on paper. Put it right in front of you. I am worried about, and then write it out. And then look at that, read it, and ask yourself, is my God greater than that? Has my Jesus offered a solution for that? Is there any reason for me to worry about this more than to have confidence and comfort in Christ? And you will find, be anxious for nothing. But instead, the Apostle Paul encourages us to pray to God. What happens if we do? Verse number seven. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know the connection to six and to seven, how they're connected. You know what's anxious in verse number six is your mind. You know what the Apostle Paul has been talking about this whole book is your mind. Why entitle it Paul's perspective? Because it's his mind he's sharing. Brethren, to me, all the way back in chapter 1. For to me, in chapter 1, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And as many as us as have this mind, and now be anxious for nothing in your mind, in your spirit, but the peace of God, that's the blessing. The peace of God actually is that which triumphs over worry. God's peace is powerful peace. Because it's God's peace, it's limitless peace. Because it's God's peace, it's incomprehensible peace. Our Lord said it, John chapter 16 and verse number 27, peace I leave with you, my peace give I unto you. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Go through the life of Christ and find him frequently, if not always, right at peace. The apostles are in the midst of a storm. 
The ship is being tossed so much so that these seasoned, weather-worn fishermen are deeply concerned. So concerned, in fact, that they rush to find the Savior. You remember where he was, don't you? Worried? No. How worried can you be when you sleep? They found our Savior sleeping in that storm, and he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea. I read one person that said the calming of the sea was as stark and as quick and as defined as was the storm. And what captured their attention is how quickly they went from the boat rocking to the wind being rebuked and it stopping. And there being a great calm. That's the nature of our Lord. Peace in the midst of the storm. How was our Lord when his enemies were swirling about him? When they brought the woman caught in adultery, in the very act, tempting him, surely he must be worried. Oh, no, he was. In fact, he didn't even take the time to look up. He just kept writing on the ground. What he wrote, I have no idea. But how bothered are you when people are swirling around and what are you doing? I'm just writing on the ground. Is that peace? He was at peace at the supper. One of you are going to betray me tonight. Didn't you hear the concern in our Lord's voice when he said it? Didn't you see the, the rise in anxiety and anxiousness? One of you are going to betray me tonight. Which one? Is it me? Lord, is it I? Is it I? It's the one who dips his hand at me in the side. What you do, go do quickly. He must have been anxious when they came, when they were about to arrest him. Who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus. I am he. Judas, dost thou betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Maybe he was agitated on trial when Peter was down there saying, I don't even know the man. Maybe he was anxious before, before Pilate and before the Jewish council when they hired liars and they couldn't agree. And aren't you going to say anything? Pilate, so amazed, do you not hear what they're saying about you? And he answered not a word. Maybe Pilate thought he would be agitated and irritated, but he wasn't. Even when our Lord was as experiencing a great trauma there in the garden, there was sweat falling from him, as, as it were, great sweat drops of blood. What did he do? He did exactly what Paul said. He prayed, and when that prayer was over, he walked out of that garden and went to the cross with not so much as a word. Christ's peace is what Peter had after the resurrection. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And when you're converted, strengthen the brethren. Because it's God's peace, it's infinite peace. It's a heavenly peace, and if you have the mind of Christ, then you can have peace. I trust that when you and I went through these last several years and as they continue onward, I hope that the world saw in you and saw in me people who were just like Jesus, at peace in the midst of the storm. It's God's peace that will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. 
If you look at what Paul says in these first seven verses, they're all connected in thought. He says, stand firm in the Lord. Live in harmony in the Lord. Help those who labor in the Lord. And then he says, rejoice in the Lord. And let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. Let them see Christ in you. And be anxious for nothing. But with prayer, supplication, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, you won't experience anything that Jesus ever says, well, I would have been with you, but things got too hard. There's just nothing too hard for the Lord. And friends, if you're not a Christian tonight, you need this life. You need Jesus in your life. Our Lord says it right in John chapter 15. I am the vine and my father is the husbandman. Abide in me. He says in that section of scripture, without me, you can do nothing. We're not there yet, but I love putting John 15 with Philippians 4, where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ. And Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. If you never obeyed the gospel, believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess his name, be buried with him in baptism, and let God save you. But if you are his child, Friends, if I haven't said it before, let me say it now. There is intended to be, and there very well should be, a marked difference between those who live without Jesus and those who live with him. Not simply the translation and location, but the minds of those people ought to be different. Let us rejoice in the Lord always, and let us have peace in our minds and our hearts because of our Lord and our Savior. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.